Hey, Moving Forward listeners, I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about my new books. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know that I helped bring my dad's business into the 21st century with Poshmark. I've documented everything we've done so you can start a business right from your closet or expand an existing business with an effective e-commerce solution, even if you don't have a large marketing budget or social media following. The Poshmark Guide for Individuals and Small Businesses is now available in paperback and for Kindle. You can also find the Poshmark Journal for Individuals and Small Businesses with worksheets to help you manage your inventory and negotiate effectively and confidently on the platform. Both titles are available on Amazon, where you can find quick access links at bemovingforward.com or in my link tree, which is in the show notes for today's episode. Start learning and moving forward today. Hey, John Lim here. We're moving forward with episode 395. Happy Friday. We're continuing on with the summer film series. We're almost finished. This is, I know, a shorter series than last year, uh, but I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Uh, so I was thinking about which movie I should talk about this week. Initially, I was going to talk about 12 Angry Men. It's a classic black and white legal thriller. It's one I've mentioned before on prior seasons of the podcast and prior blogs. However, since I've already covered two legal thrillers this year and I've covered several last year, I wanted to make sure that I don't simply cover great movies that are universally loved. And so far, all of the films I've talked about have had great critical acclaim. They're very well-known. They're very popular. And as with last year's film series, I want to include at least one or two guilty pleasures, movies that you probably haven't heard of, movies that aren't very well-regarded, but ones that I happen to enjoy, because I think that's important. If if you're going to share only movies that are really great, that are universally loved— you know, you need a little variety. So I actually thought about this and it occurred to me that a movie series that I revisit once every other year, and I I did so uh, recently during the pandemic after having taken a few years off from having seen the films, uh, I really enjoy these movies. And um, I'm going to talk about Two very obscure movies. They're actually part of a series. They're sequels. And they come from an era that really is something you don't see anymore. It's These are from the 90s. And they're part of that era of low-budget action martial arts films that you just don't really see as much anymore. And I'm going to talk about today Ring of Fire 1 and Ring of Fire 2. They were made in 1991 and 92, respectively. These are movies that are so obscure, unless you're a martial arts fan. Now, if you love martial arts films, you've probably seen these. You you may have heard of them. You may own them. You may enjoy them. But for most people who are not fans of this genre— you're probably not going to be aware of these movies. And in fact, when I say Ring of Fire, you probably think of the Johnny Cash song. But uh, in addition to that famous song, it's also the title of today's uh, film series picks. So let me start with Ring of Fire 1. It stars Don the Dragon Wilson, 
he plays Johnny Wu. Don Wilson was a very well-renowned uh, kickboxer. He's still very active today. Uh, and uh, he did a string of action films in the 90s. And this was one of his starring vehicles. So I think this was an era where you saw a lot of martial artists become actors. They cross that line to becoming actors. Similar to you know what you saw in the 70s, you know, riding off of the wave of Bruce Lee and later Jackie Chan. Uh, once you get into the 90s, once you had movies like The Karate Kid, which hit mainstream popularity, I think you saw a lot of martial artists uh, kind of cross the bridge into action films. So there are a lot of these films in the 80s and the 90s. Obviously, Chuck Norris is probably the most mainstream name that most people are familiar with, John claude Van Damme. But Don Wilson was also part of that. He produced and starred in a lot of these films. And I think Ring of Fire uh, was one of his early ones in 1991. So he plays Johnny Wu. He plays an ER doctor, uh, and he's also an experienced uh, martial artist. I'll get into that in just a minute. The cast is also includes uh, Maria Ford. She's, uh, I think, pretty well known uh, for having starred in a lot of B films. Uh, she plays Julie. There's uh, Dale Jacoby. He plays Brad. Stephen Vincent Lee, he's also another martial artist who I think did a lot of films in the 90s. He also appeared in a lot of uh mainstream shows. He plays Terry Wu. He's uh, Johnny's cousin. You have Vince Murdaco. He plays Chuck. Ron Yuan, who I think went on to do a lot of uh, production for major films, but at the in the 90s, he was starring in a lot of uh, these types of films. He plays uh, Lee, and then you have another uh, martial artist, Eric Lee. He plays Kwong. The basic plot and this is why I pick Ring of Fire. This is why this movie kind of resonates with me. It actually has an interesting story. A lot of these films in the 90s didn't focus a lot on story. It was more on displaying great martial arts action. And if you like this genre, for the most part, you watch these movies not for the story. You watch it for the uh, escapism of watching uh, great martial arts on screen, great stunts, great action, great fighting. Uh, you don't really have much of a plot. For the most part, the plot is very thin in these movies. Ring of Fire actually, I think, puts effort into the plot. And the best way I can describe it, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet West Side Story kind of movie, but set in L.A. involving martial arts gangs. And so you have a, an Asian gang of martial artists, you have a Caucasian gang of martial artists, and they're rivals. And the, and the rivals are led by Terry and Brad, and, and they kind of butt heads with each other, and uh, they compete in uh, these tournaments where they're fighting each other. And these are just like underground, unsanctioned tournaments. And Johnny, who is Terry's cousin, he's trying to make his uh, way as a, uh, as a doctor, putting, putting behind his past in, in, in martial arts. I think he does it more as a hobby. But he's just trying to stay on the straight and narrow. In addition, you have a detective who um, Lopez, played by character actor Michael Delano, who's also appeared in a lot of films, uh, mainstream as well as uh, low budget over the years. So he's uh, trying to make sure that there's no trouble in the streets, and he's very suspicious of both of these gangs. He's he's 
he's always giving Johnny a hard time because he suspects that he's somehow involved. Anyway, so you've got this intricate plot, and there's a love story between Johnny and Julie, which obviously causes a lot of tension on both sides. So it has that Romeo and Juliet vibe. It has that West Side Story vibe. And, of course, there's a lot of martial arts action. This is a movie which I think is an example of a low-budget film where the acting is okay. It's not great. You don't watch films like this for the for the acting. But I think the actors actually try and they do their best, which gives it this very earnest quality. So you're not going to see the top-level acting that you would in a mainstream film. Certainly not uh, contemporaries with the films I've been talking about over the couple of last couple of weeks. However, you can tell that the actors have really tried. I think I don't know. I don't really know anything about the produ- behind the productions of this of this film, but it seems like everyone really put their all into it. And I, I got the impression that they had a good time. And I've seen interviews with some of the actors where they recall this movie fairly fondly. But this movie actually tried to put together a story. And it's one of those films in which it's an example of a low-budget film where they don't have a lot of money to work with, obviously. However, they actually put some effort into the story. And sometimes those movies can be far more fun than watching a big, big-budget film where they have a lot of special effects and they have uh, you know, all the, the fixins. Of a, of a big Hollywood movie, but the plot and the story is thin. So this is an example of one of those movies, and I, I was thinking that this, this would be an example that I would pick for a movie in which it has an interesting story. If it had had more of a budget, if it had had a major studio behind it, this movie actually could have been something really, really interesting. And I think it could have had some... Uh, notoriety, and I think it could have had some mainstream popularity. So how did I discover Ring of Fire? I I liked martial arts films growing up. I wasn't a diehard fan. These were the types of movies that I might watch if they were on uh, television on Saturday afternoon. Ring of Fire 1 I actually caught while I was in college, and I remember it was uh, spring semester, and I was getting ready to study for final exams. So this is right before the summer, And I took a study break, and during the 90s, this was like the mid-90s, there was a, uh, at the time, I think it still exists, there was a cable network called USA, and on Friday nights, they would play these B-films, these low-budget films, and sometimes uh, among the roster, they would have these martial arts films, and that's where I actually caught part of Ring of Fire. I just turned it on just to have something in the background as I was taking a study break. But then I got kind of sucked into the plot. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting story. You have this uh, these two star-crossed lovers. You have these rival gangs. The acting, obviously, was a little bit uneven, as well as the cinematography, the production values, all of that. But it actually had a story to it. And I, I actually got sucked into the story. And it wasn't until years later... Because this is not the type of film that you would see very often. It was just a fluke that I happened to catch it. And it wasn't until many years later where I happened to see, it, I think I was at a Best Buy, and I, I saw it, the, the first film on DVD, and it, it, it wasn't very expensive, so I just bought it. And that's when I actually saw it uh, from beginning to end. I hadn't really seen the whole thing before. 
and I really loved it. And in fact, it's it's a movie that I continue to revisit every now and then. I just recently rewatched it, uh, not even thinking about it for the film series for this podcast. But uh, since I just revisited it, I thought it'd, it'd be a really good one to talk about. Little did I know there was actually a sequel. And uh, I didn't know this until... Gosh, much later. This is like the early 2000s, around the time where I actually saw Ring of Fire when I got it on DVD. I discovered, I think, there was a trailer for Ring of Fire 2, which was which actually came out the year after in 1992. And um, I ended up getting that one. In fact, the only way I could get Ring of Fire 2, this is a, just a f- funny little story, is that um, I had to order the box set of the the trilogy and that's where i discovered there's actually a ring of fire three which i'll mention a little bit towards the end so i actually ended up buying the box set on amazon it wasn't very expensive which means i actually have the first movie twice and i'm not the type of person who likes to have duplicates you know if i buy something on physical media i usually stick with that version and that includes uh you know going from dvd to blu-ray i won't for the most part, I won't even upgrade, even if it's a movie I really like. I just don't like having anything unnecessary. So if I own a movie once, typically I won't buy it again. But in this case, I made an exception just because I wanted to see the second one. I saw the trailer, I think, on YouTube, and I thought it looked really interesting. So Ring of Fire 2 is a completely different story. However, what I like about it is that it has a lot of continuity and connection to the first one. Unlike a lot of movies in this era where you would have a sequel, they would slap a part two uh, on a movie and they might have none of the returning characters or maybe one of the returning characters. What I like about Ring of Fire 2 is that it actually has continuity and it remembers things that happened in Ring of Fire 1, such that there are callbacks to it. So Ring of Fire 2, let me just give you the quick rundown. So Don the Dragon Wilson, he returns as as Johnny Wu. Uh, Maria Ford comes back as Julie of Dale Jacoby. Ron Yuan, Eric Lee, Vince Murdoch. They, all those guys from the first movie are in the second one. Adding to the cast, uh, in addition to... Uh, Several other martial artists from the area. You have Ian Jacklin. He plays the bad guy in the second one. He plays Kalen. And Cy Richardson, he plays a Vietnam vet named Ernest. Now, unlike Ring of Fire 1, which is a Romeo and Juliet West Side type of story with martial arts gangs, Ring of Fire 2, I think the best way to describe it, it's sort of like a Mad Max type of movie. You've got Ian Jacklin running this gang, this society that lives underground. So there's a little bit of a dystopian feel to it. And the movie starts out with spoilers. I, and I don't even know why I'm giving a spoiler warning because these movies are so old. But um, Johnny and Julie end up together, they survive all the stuff that happens in the first film, and they're engaged, and they're shopping for her engagement ring when uh, Kalen and his gang of thugs, now these guys are dressed like they're out of a Mad Max movie, they break into this jewelry store to rob it, and uh, Julie gets injured in the process, so she's taken to the hospital. Uh, meanwhile, uh, as, as, as Johnny is attending to her, uh, Kalen is captured by the police, including Detective Lopez, who Michael Delano, he returns in this movie as well. 
And then what's cool about this one and what I thought was really interesting, it's a little bit jarring, but yet at the same time, I actually like that they had character arcs for characters from the first one, is that you have uh, some of the gang from the first one, the opposing gang, including Brad and Chuck, they have now become friends with Johnny. And, And again, if you watch the first one, you'll see that everything culminates into a big fight between Johnny and Brad after he kills one of the characters. And they basically fight things out at the end of the first one. It just sort of abruptly ends, but there's an implication that they may find some peace with each other. They don't really go into it too much. But by the second one, it's assumed that they've all kind of found peace together. And and Brad and Chuck, who were sort of the antagonists in the first one, are now... Uh, they're now good guys. They're they're all friends, which is really cool. I actually think that is a cool twist. Even if it is a little jarring, it takes a little bit of more, maybe a lot of suspension of disbelief to go from one to two. However, you just kind of assume that some time has passed between those two movies and maybe they worked out their differences. Anyway, what ends up happening is that Kalen and his gang they kidnap Julie out of the hospital, and it's a hilarious scene where you see these guys dressed up like they're out of a Mad Max film, like really just like in 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 these strange outfits invading a hospital to kidnap Julie, and they take her to this underground place to lure Johnny, and Johnny ends up, first he tries to work with the police, he tries to work with Detective Lopez to see if they can negotiate for her release. That doesn't quite work out, so he ends up going underground himself, and he teams up with a Vietnam vet, Ernest, uh, who's been living underground, just surviving and trying to avoid the gangs. And then um, uh, behind him are Brad, Chuck, Lee, and Quang. Again, these are characters from the two rival gangs from the first one who are now friends. They're following to help Johnny and to help rescue Julie. By the way, Julie is Brad's sister. So, you know, just in case I didn't mention that in the first one. So there's a connection, a familial connection with a a lot of these uh, characters. So um, as with the first one, there's a lot of martial arts action. This time it's mostly underground and it is such a strange film that uh, just the set design, it's just really weird looking. It's very low budget. And yet at the same time, I had a good time with it. It's fun. It's not quite as intriguing as the first film, but I think they still made an effort to make an interesting story. And what I liked about this one is it doesn't retread part one. In fact, it does quite the opposite. It goes in a completely different direction while not forgetting the roots of the first one. So Let me just sum up uh, Ring of Fire 1 and 2. Ring of Fire 1, I'm going to give it a three and a half star, barely eking out that half star over the three. I think the good, it tries. It tries its best despite its limitations in budget and resources. It tries. It's a fun movie. It moves quickly, and it's not a very long film. It's about 90 minutes. Uh, The bad, I mean, you know, this is just what you accept when you watch a movie like this. However, I will say... If this movie had had a little more polish, a little more budget, a little more resources, I think it could have been a really great film. I think it could be a, it could have been a very good mainstream film. Uh, it's just the limitation of the resources. And again, when I say bad, that's not necessarily a pejorative. That's just a limitation of what they had to work with at the time. So uh, this is one of those movies where 
If you don't mind watching low-budget films, I think you might really enjoy this one. Now, where can you find Ring of Fire 1? Now, that's the tricky part. It is not easy to find. It's one of those movies where you might find it streaming on Amazon Prime once in a blue moon. I would recommend you might find it on obscure streamers like uh, some of the uh, lesser-known ones like Tubi. That's probably where you would find something like this. I doubt it would appear on on Netflix. Certainly not not a mainstream one like HBO because this is this is just kind of that low budget uh, martial arts films. Amazon Prime would probably be your best bet. Obviously, you can purchase this on physical media or rent it on streaming. I'll have affiliate links uh, on the write up for today's episode. Ring of Fire 2, I'm going to give this a three-star rating, a solid three-star. It doesn't quite get the half-star. In terms of the good, again, this is a fun movie. If you could just put aside the fact that it is uh, not, it doesn't have the polish or the budget of a mainstream film, then you can have a lot of fun with this. I think one of its strengths is that it does have a lot of continuity with the first one. There are callbacks, there are ties to it. In fact, there's some strange callbacks to the first one. Um, but uh, it does its best to remember the, its history. And anytime a sequel respects what came before it, builds on it, even if it's really hard to do, I give that a lot of props. And and that's something that I appreciate. Uh Related to that, one of its strengths is that the characters do have arcs. I think it's really cool to see some of the antagonists from the first film become some of the good guys in the second film. I think that's really neat. And another positive is that it is just fun, just off the wall, crazy, uh, you know, action. And it it's not a retread of the first film. In terms of the bad, there are some slow moments in it. There's some uh, definite rough spots, even compared to the first one. Uh, and, and, you know, the limitations of the budget show. I mean, the fact is most of this takes place in this underground world, this dystopia, but the lighting is so poor that it's hard to see what's going on sometimes, which, uh, you know, again, I think that's more of a limitation of the budget. But if you can put that aside, I think you'll have a good time. And I do do recommend watch these movies in tandem. Now, Ring of Fire 2, as it happens, is streaming on Amazon Prime, and that's where I caught it. I actually caught Ring of Fire 2. I saw it was streaming on Prime. I decided to um, uh, watch it on Prime, and then I went back and dug up my DVD of Ring of Fire 1 to re-watch that, and that's where I got the spark to talk about it for uh, today's episode. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there is a Ring of Fire 3. It came out in 1995, and I only know this because I got the box set. Uh, and I will tell you, avoid Ring of Fire 3. It is a terrible film. This is an example of low-budget sequels that are in-name only capitalizing on a prior property. And this is typically what you would see in a second movie. This is what... Normally, you would see in, in a part two, but they did it for part three. What part one and did so, uh, part two did so well is that it follows up on part one. It's a continuation. There's continuity. There's characters that carry over. Part three really feels like, and this was a big trend with a lot of low-budget films in that era, is that they just took a script that wasn't written for this particular franchise, and they just slapped the title on it. And in this movie, 
The only returning characters you have are Don the Dragon Wilson as Johnny Wu. And oddly enough, you have the detective Michael Delano as Lopez, but he has such a small role and it's so superfluous that I'm, I think they just shoehorned him in just to keep some semblance of continuity. Unfortunately, almost all of the, pretty much the rest of the cast from the first two movies are not in this movie. And so it's not as much of an ensemble piece. On top of that, it is a strange film because whereas the first two, uh, you know, really have this basis, this uh, story that they build on. First with these rival gangs, and then in the second one, these, uh, you know, members of these gangs coming together to rescue the sister of one of the leaders of the gangs who's, you know, uh, the love interest of the protagonist. Here, all of that is pretty much brushed aside in favor of something that you see a lot with films from the 90s. Uh, it is a generic plot about spies and stolen microchips. And I have no idea why this was such a big thing back then, but you saw there were so many low-budget action movies in which that was the plot. Something like spy thriller, stolen microchips. And I don't know why that was a go-to. And you saw that particularly with a lot of sequels to fairly popular films. So low-budget sequels. This is definitely an example of a film, a different story that just had the Ring of Fire label slapped on it. Again, the only returning characters are Don the Dragon Wilson and um, the detective from the first two movies. And here, it doesn't feel like the same character. It doesn't feel like the same story. There is a brief mention about uh, what happened to one of the characters and I don't even know why I'm bothering with the spoilers, but I'm not going to spoil it. I will say it's not a bad film by itself. If if it wasn't called Ring of Fire 3, if it was just called something else, as a standalone, just like mindless martial arts action film, it's actually got some pretty good action sequences. The martial arts sequences are fairly well done. It just doesn't fit with the first two movies. And part of that might have been the fact that the first two were made back to back. But even so, I'm just disappointed that they couldn't have come up with a story that continued what they established in the first two movies. So my advice is avoid Ring of Fire 3. I happen to own it only because I have the box set. But it's not a movie that I've seen more than once. I think I've seen it twice total. And it's not one that uh, I revisited now and and I and in fact I like to just say that Ring of Fire three is probably just a, an anomaly. It's an alternate universe. Uh, if I had my wish wish list, and and I know I've talked about wish lists with the last couple of reviews, I would actually like to see a a proper Ring of Fire three. I, I this is never going to happen because this is a property that doesn't have the notoriety of a popular mainstream film. But I, you know there. You know, if I had my druthers, I would love to see a, a, an actual reunion Ring of Fire 3 with the original cast, many of whom are still around and many of whom are still acting and active. So I think that might be pretty cool to see what kind of story they could come up with in modern times. Again, that's probably never going to happen. So if you want something that 
is low budget, that's just fun, a little bit of an escape for a couple of hours, I recommend Ring of Fire 1 and 2. Give it a try. Again, Ring of Fire 2 is streaming on Amazon Prime right now as of the airing of this episode. Ring of Fire 1, uh, you can either wait till it comes on streaming. It does. I think it pops up every now and then, or you can get it on physical media or streaming through uh, my affiliate links in the write-up. All right, that's it for today. I hope you have a great weekend. No matter what films you're watching, I hope you're enjoying yourself. Uh, we're going to do one more episode of the Summer Film Series to wrap it up. That'll be next week. Hope you have a great weekend, and I'll be back next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving a rating and review. It helps the podcast and is greatly appreciated. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and bemovingforward.com. All rights reserved.